they were singing that song, You Are My Reason to Live, and then again when he was singing that song, uh, Though My World May Fall, I'll Never Let You Go. There's something about that that resonates, I think, in all of our hearts. I think that we probably find that in the book of Job, don't we? When he says, though God, though he slay me, yet I'm still going to trust in him. There's something in us that knows we can and should trust God even when his ways do not make sense to us. Amen? And I kind of felt that when they were singing that song and the one before. God, let's have that kind of devotion tonight that, Lord, I don't have to understand everything. I want to understand whatever I can understand, but I don't have to understand everything. I just don't want to ever let you go. I don't ever want to lose your presence in my life. Amen? Maybe we could unite together and just pray for a minute. I have some things that I want to share with you. This is probably the last meeting of this kind that I'm going to be in for about a month. And I have a burden I want to communicate to you. But we all need to be of one mind and one accord in order for that to happen. So can we just unite and seek the Lord one more time and ask Him to shine His light in our lives, to speak His word to us, God? God, we need You, Jesus. We don't need what man can offer. We don't need the mind of man. We don't need the strength of man. We don't need the counsel of man. We need You, Jesus. We need Your presence, God. We ask you to speak to us tonight. Take us a step further in this journey, O oh God. Hallelujah. Let your presence go with us, O oh God, in Jesus' name. Anoint me, God. Anoint us to hear. Anoint us to speak, O oh God. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We were sitting in a conversation Saturday night with two men that were from out of the country, and they were asking some questions. I think specifically they, the first thing they had brought up was about child raising, how to raise children like they were seeing that children were being raised here. And one thing led to the next, and in that context, we felt the need to point out that as much as we wanted to help by offering some advice, some instruction on the particulars of child rearing, we felt the need to point out that there has to be a bigger perspective, a more comprehensive framework in which the particulars of child-rearing or any other particulars of obedience, in which those must find their, their meaning. Amen? And in that sense, we started talking about an attitude that we have to foster in ourselves, in our families, in our fellowships, that basically says we don't believe in man we do believe in God. <laughs> Sounds very simple, but an attitude that says man can do so much. He is so talented. He is so clever. 
He has such a creative capacity that it's stunning how much man can do without God. But we have to foster in ourselves a dissatisfaction for what the flesh can do. But you think about when you came and God captured your heart. It wasn't because everything was so sweet and calm and palatable to your fearful flesh. Nor was it because someone put on some glowing show of all that man could do. It was because you felt the presence of the eternal God. It may have scared you. It may have startled you. But you at least were consoled that God was real. And when God became real, you felt like you could have a relationship with him. And the greatest evil that we could perpetrate against ourselves, against our brothers and sisters, against those who will be our brothers and sisters who are still hungering and thirsting for more in this artificial world, the greatest evil would be for us to become satisfied with anything short of God. For us to feel like it's great to have God's presence, but if we don't, we'll go ahead and do it in the flesh anyway. It's great to have His guidance, but if we don't receive it, we'll go ahead and make a well-educated decision anyway. It's great to have His anointing, but if we don't feel it, We'll just launch out and try to rely on our own cleverness or giftedness. We have got to cultivate a dissatisfaction for everything that flesh and man can do if we would ever prepare ourselves for the sacrifice of entertaining the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and actually seeing what he could do. Amen. I thought of this scripture. It's a story of Zacchaeus. This is what comes immediately before the passage I want to read to you. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, right? But he wanted to see the presence. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to be in the presence of God. And he did whatever it took to, to get there. And when he got there, when Jesus looked up to him, Jesus told him to come down. And he went to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was not a good man. He was a tax collector. The way that worked back in that day is the Romans sold to the highest bidder, to the richest man, they sold the right to tax other people. Does that make sense? And so the rich man could add on to those taxes whatever he wanted, just so long as he gave the bottom line to the Romans. So they hated the tax collectors, the publicans and tax collectors, because they would steal. They would 
require more of the people than the Romans were asking because they needed to line their own pockets to make the whole effort worth their while. Does that make sense? It was a form of capitalism even in taxation. <clears throat> so Jesus comes into his house and it doesn't tell us that he says anything. This is in Luke 19. It just says that he's eating there at his house and it says that there were people who saw him go into Zacchaeus' house who were chock full of judgments. And they began to say, it never tells us, Luke never tells us who the they are. It's just this ubiquitous they. He says, and he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And he doesn't tell us specifically who the they are, but we know who the they are, don't we? The they crowd. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord. Doesn't say that Jesus said anything to him. Says that Zacchaeus, they're, they're having dinner, and Zacchaeus stops. Puts down his food or whatever he was doing, and he says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And then Jesus responds to Zacchaeus. Just being in the presence of God prompted a change without any words that we know of being exchanged. Amen? Just sitting there and feeling the kindness of God that leads us to repentance prompted Zacchaeus to initiate a course that changed his life. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable to them. Because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Everyone that was following him, this crowd of disciples, we don't know if it numbered in the thousands at this point, at this point but it was a sizable group of people have been listening to him teach. He's just taught Luke 18. He's taught about the, the rich young ruler. He's, ta he's, he's taught the Pharisees. He's taught, done the parable on prayer. Prior to that, he's talked about um, the second coming and the rich man and Lazarus. It's been a pretty intense season of teaching and preaching. Amen? And as they're journeying along, they're getting close to Jerusalem. And the people can sense that this is an important shift. Something is coming. There's an expectancy in the air. And they're getting excited because these people want to see the kingdom of God. Amen? And so Luke tells us, having written this uh, some decades after the occasion, Luke tells us he was near Jerusalem 
and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, and so Jesus told them this parable. So he detects that some of this excitement and expectation in the crowd is of a nature that they expect God's kingdom is just going to show up just like that. Amen? What parable did he tell him here? He tells the parable of the talents. We all know the parable of the talents, don't we? But is it helpful to recognize that Luke tells us why Jesus told the parable of the talents? He told the parable of the talents because he didn't want people to have an unrealistic expectation of how the kingdom of God was going to show up in their life. They were looking at him saying, you are our knight in shining armor. You are our king. They had already tried to forcibly make him king. Amen? They had this excitement, this expectation inside of them. And he is trying to adjust their expectation to reality. You'll remember that the last thing the disciples said to Jesus before he ascended, when they were standing there on the Mount of Olives, just before he lifted off, what did they say to him? Lord, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? You believe all these people wanted to see the kingdom restored to Israel? This is what possessed them. This is what drove them. Amen? I believe it was, as I've said before, I believe it was even the motivation behind Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee who, if they believed anything, they believed in the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. He's not a Sadducee. He still believes in the Word of God. He still believes in the resurrection. He was a conservative, and the Sadducees were the liberals. <laughs> Amen? And he comes to Jesus at night, and you say, well, why did he come to him at night? Because he didn't want to be seen by men. Why not? How many times did somebody come and start talking to Jesus and not really getting to the point, and Jesus read their minds and talked about what was really going on behind the scenes, like the woman at the well? You remember? Well, that's what he does to Nicodemus. In the conversation, Nicodemus comes and he talks to Jesus about Jesus. He says, Lord, we know that you were sent by God. Who's we? I would suggest that it's the company of Pharisees who, who are eyeing Jesus as a potential candidate for a big, big change that they were expecting. Amen? We know that you've been sent by God. For no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. What did Jesus say? Well, I'm glad you realize I was sent by God. What does Jesus say? What is his response to Nicodemus? Thank you. He says to Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. How did we jump the topic from talking about Jesus to talking about the kingdom of God? Unless Jesus perceived that that's exactly what Nicodemus was intimating. His flattery was an overture. It was a suggestion. And Jesus was saying, 
Let's not worry about me and how qualified I am. Let's talk about your blindness. Unless something happens to you that is equal to rebirth, you who are a believer in God, a student of the Scriptures, looking for the restoration of the kingdom, you can't see the kingdom that you're wanting so bad. It's going to lie hidden from your eyes. Amen? So he has encountered this several times, hasn't he? And he's encountering it here in Luke 19 again. A certain expectation. Now what was Jesus' first proclamation? One which was repeated, which he commanded the disciples to repeat. His proclamation came over and over and over again. What was his first proclamation? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So is he saying, it's not at hand? Do you think that got the attention of those people? Repent, for the thing you want more than anything in the world is about to happen. And he didn't elaborate. He didn't go into the details of what that kingdom would look like. They didn't have the capacity to comprehend it. But he told them the kingdom of God was at hand. And now he says something to those who imagine. He uses, Luke uses the word imagine. Who are fantasizing that the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. So in one sense, he's telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand. And in another sense, he's saying, you can't see the kingdom of God. And it doesn't appear immediately. Amen? To the disciples, how did he respond to their question about the kingdom? They said, Lord, is it this time you will restore the kingdom of Israel, to the kingdom to Israel? And it doesn't sound like he answers the question, but he does. Remember that in Mark 9 and 1, he had said, there are those standing here who will not taste death until after they see the kingdom of God come with power. So when they say, Lord, is it this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He starts by saying, it is not for you to know times and seasons which the Father has fixed in his own authority. But, back to the point of the kingdom, but... After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power. Dunamis. The endowment of power is the kingdom. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the uttermost ends of the world. Amen. He had said in Matthew 28, 19, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in Luke's version of the same Great Commission, he says that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached and remission of sins would be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, the kingdom is inaugurated when we are endued with power. I have a whole study I wish I could give on that, 
but that's not what I'm going to do tonight. Amen? The kingdom is birthed when we are endued with power by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And does the fullness of the kingdom appear immediately as soon as that happens? Hmm? As soon as someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, does the full, is the fullness of the kingdom realized instantaneously in their life? But that is the coming of the kingdom. That is the coming of the kingdom of God because now the king, the Lord, is the spirit. Amen? Now we could talk a lot about that, but Jesus is talking to us about how the kingdom is going to go from a birth into a fullness. Amen? And he says to those who imagine that the kingdom of God will appear immediately, he tells them, you're looking in the wrong place. You are looking to Jesus as your knight in shining armor. You're looking to him to come in riding a white horse and take over Jerusalem in an afternoon. But he, this great king, is looking to you. And he is going on a long journey. It is expedient that I go away or else who won't come? The Comforter, the Holy Spirit. The birth of the kingdom. The kingdom was already alive inside of Jesus, right? But he wanted it to come alive inside of a multitude. Amen? So he goes on a long journey. But he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm not going to come to you in the flesh, where flesh can argue with flesh. I'm going to come to you in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter. The spirit of, the tr of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you. That's Jesus. But he will be in you. That's also Jesus. The spirit of God. Amen. But he's afraid that there are going to be people. They know. They all knew that Jerusalem was where it would begin. But he's afraid there are going to be people who imagine some kind of magic, an instantaneous realization in Jerusalem. And so he tells them the story of the talents. And the story is one in which he puts the onus on us. The onus for expansion he puts on us. Amen. The onus for growth, the, lie, the responsibility for expansion, he puts it on us. And he says, the kingdom of God shall be compared to a man who went on a long journey. And before going, he gathered his servants. And to one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one. And he commanded them to do business until he returned. 
Was it a business of maintenance or was it a business of expansion? A business of maintenance amounted to being bound hand and foot and thrown into outer darkness. This is our responsibility concerning the kingdom of God. Are you maintaining or are you expanding? Now the Lord is the Spirit. Is the reign of God expanding in your life? Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Amen? Now the first two He gave to each according to His ability. The first two, we know what they did. The, second, the third, we also know what he did. He tried to do the work of maintenance, of maintaining what was given so that he could give it back when it was done. Did he lose his place in the kingdom of God? He lost it. They said, bind him hand and foot and throw him into outer darkness where there will be great disappointment at the opportunities he thwarted while never knowing they were opportunities. And why did he thwart his opportunities? Why did his fire go out? Because he knew God was unfair. I want to tell you something tonight. God is unfair. God is not fair. Let's talk about what fair is. Amen? Fair is that we reap what we sow. Fair is all souls are mine, and the soul that sins shall die. Fair is all are shut up under judgment because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Fair is justice, and justice demands that every last one of us give a full payment of what we have stolen from God. That's what fair is. Let me tell you what unfair is. Unfair is God clothing himself in the frailty and weakness of our human flesh and being found in appearance as a man, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the demands of love of not grasping for his rights as God. He was God. He was God. But he emptied himself and let go of all of his rights, made himself of no reputation, and pay, paid our debt for us. That is unfair. Is suffering fair? Yes, it's fair. Because we are partakers of the sin 
of rebellion, the sin of Adam. Suffering is what we brought on ourselves when God begged us not to. Hurting the innocent is what we did to them when we became partakers with Adam in the rebellion against God. So God is not fair. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That is unfair. Amen. That is unfair. That is unjust. We humans, we call fairness and justice the law that equalizes. If I have stolen, then it can be taken from me. But God says you have stolen, but I'll pay the bill for you. That's not fair. You see, this was the dilemma of Job. He was suffering great pain and loss. Amen? And really, throughout the, pick of, throughout the story of Job, they created two they created a false dilemma of two wrong perspectives. Are you still with me? One group said, this is happening, Job, because you're an evil man and you did specific evil things that have provoked this wrath of God. God is judging you because you're a bad man. And Job, on the other hand, he, he represented the other perspective and he said, no, God's being unfair. He said, oh, I wish that there was someone who could arbitrate between the two of us because in a court case, I would present my case and you would lose. That's what he said to God because he knew that he had kept himself clean. He had integrity. He also had a whole lot more of it than most of us because I don't know that any of us would say that. Do you understand the false dilemma that they had set up? Job said, God's not fair because I know I didn't do anything to deserve this. And his friends said, God is fair, and you must have done something to deserve this. Which one was right? Which one was wrong? Both were wrong. In the end, it would almost seem like his friends were right because it says, Job says, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. When God says, stand up and I'm going to question you like a man. You remember this? So it almost seems like Job is giving credence to his friends. But is that what was happening? No, God turned around and he rebuked his friends. He told them they were worthless, and they certainly were. So, what's going on here? In this false dilemma that we've set up, neither is right. Job is not being judged by God because of things he did wrong. But Job is a partaker of a judgment that mankind invoked on himself. Are you with me? 
God's not the one doing this. Who was the one doing it? Satan was the one doing it. Amen? Now, God allowed it because he trusted Job to go to an extent that none of us have ever encountered. God allowed something even exceptional to what Satan is allowed to do. Amen? He will not, we will not be tempted beyond what we, what we can bear. God knows what we can bear, and Job had exceptional forbearance. <laughs> Are you with me still? So Job had not done something that God was judging him for. That's what his friends said. That wasn't true. But neither did Job have a right to challenge the justice of God because Job was a man, and as a man, he was a partaker in the sin of Adam. He was heir to the, the, to the sin and the judgment of Adam. He had a sin nature. This was not God disciplining him for specific things, but he was a sinner. Therefore, he did not have a right to call justice and say that God was being unfair. Do you follow me? So when we go through things, we don't have a right, nobody should say, although it is possible, we shouldn't assume that this is happening because of some specific deed that I did. But neither do we have a right to say, God, this is unfair. Because what's fair is hell. That's what's fair if we speak of fairness in terms of justice. Justice demands that we should die. We didn't create this world. We didn't create the laws that govern it. We're not God. So we cannot impose our opinion or perspective as if God were bound by it. This is his world. It's his garden. It's his mankind that he created for his glory. And he set the rules. We have to answer to him. He warned us. He showed us. He pleaded with us. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what is unfair is that that God loved us so much that he was not willing to let us go. He loved us so much, he said, I'm going to go down and I'm going to taste their agony. Like the agony of hell itself, I'm going to partake of their suffering. I'm going to absorb the full impact of judgment that their sins demand. Was that fair? Was that fair? Jesus dying on the cross, was that just? So we can't have it both ways, can we? We can't say we want justice and fairness, but we also want the cross. We want one, or we want the other. But if we want the cross, we have to accept that life is not fair. But it is not tilted against us. It is tilted toward us. It is not stacked against us. It is stacked in our favor. Amen. 
And the things that we suffer, the hard things, the painful things, the cruel things, they are only a fraction of what we deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. The fire of God will be rekindled in your life when you remember that you deserve hell. The fire of God will be rekindled in your life when you say, God, that I'm still standing here breathing this air that doesn't belong to me and feeling this spirit that is from you. This is not fair. In light of God's mercy, I'm going to offer myself up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is only my reasonable form of worship. And I'm going to know again that feeling of being in God's good and acceptable and perfect will. You're unhappy because you've forgotten what's fair. You're not motivated because you've forgotten what's fair. You have forgotten what manner of man you were. You have forgotten the sins, the past sins from which you were cleansed. You have forgotten your first love and you have become satisfied with the flesh again. Like Brother Dan was ministering from Galatians. When you pray and seek the face of God, if you don't remember what you're deserving of before you start asking Him for His benefits, you're never going to hear His voice. You should start off, God, I know I deserve hell. I know it's more than I should ask. I know that in my flesh there is no good thing. That I am deserving of death in the New Testament words of Paul. But God, you are rich in mercy. And you died the most unfair death. You suffered the agony of my judgment. So Lord, if I can suffer a little for your name's sake, please help me to do it in a gracious way that brings glory to your name. If I can take the things you've given me, the gifts, and I can serve them not as something that belongs to me that I can meet out according to my will, but as a gift that is lent to me that I don't even deserve to touch. If I can invest this in a way, God, that brings honor to you, then Lord, please give me the courage and the grace today to do so and to expand your kingdom one investment at a time, offering myself, which is just my reasonable form of worship. Because I know you do not give me what I deserve. I know what I deserve. Do you remember what you deserve? Or are you one of those extra good people who don't need the cross of Christ? You see, Jesus said to the Pharisees, that which is highly esteemed by man 
is an abomination to God. The Pharisees were the people who seemed to need the cross of Christ less than anyone because they were the most righteous. But things were not as they seemed. They needed the cross of Christ just as much as everyone because their righteousness was filthy rags. And so is all righteousness that is, come, that is from the flesh as opposed to that which is through, from faith where God gets all the credit and no flesh glories in his presence. So when you come to a meeting, don't ask what will make you comfortable and what's fair. Say, God, please show me a place where I can offer a sacrifice. It will be less than a drop in the bucket of what I owe you. But if I don't have enough honor and love to put at least a drop in the bucket, and if instead I shrink back in my unbelief and I say, I know you are a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, then I'm going to be bound hand and foot. In fact, I'm already bound. I'm bound in the lies of my own self-righteousness and in the fear of my own cowardice, and it will be nobody's fault but mine when I am hurled into a place of utter and permanent disappointment. Stand before the Lord again and remember what's fair and beg him for something unfair. Beg him for grace, for a chance to bring honor and glory to his name. For our faltering, lame, blind lamb and calf sacrifices to be acceptable in his sight. Because it's the best we feeble humans can give. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to Yahweh and he will have mercy on him. To our God and he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. When he says that his thoughts are not our thoughts, what is he saying? He says, you wouldn't pardon yourself. You wouldn't forgive your neighbor. You would demand the last penny. Just like he talks about in Luke 18, the previous chapter. Amen. Matthew 18. You would demand the last penny, but he says, you look at God and imagine he thinks of you the way you think of him. But he says, if you'll just turn, God wants to forgive you. God wants to be gracious to you. God will pardon you. He's not like a man. One of the greatest distinctions between God and man is God is a God of mercy. Man is a fearful little shrew grasping and clinging to all his rights, always forgetting that it is his rights, it is his justice that will land him in hell. But it is when mercy triumphs over justice that he finds redemption and forgiveness. God's not like us. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Let him turn to God and he will freely pardon, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. You think it's beyond pardoning. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And he goes on. 
As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy. These are God's unfair thoughts. Amen? This is the unfairness of God. I'm not like you, he says. I'm not like you. You wouldn't forgive, but I will forgive. I'm not like you. I don't speak something and never plan to bring it to pass. My word that goes forth, it will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Just open your heart and let his redeeming word come inside and you can begot, be begotten of not corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, the living word of God that abides forever. So he says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways. I don't do it like you. My word counts and I follow through on it. This is what he means. You will go out in joy. Do they deserve to go out in joy? No, this is talking about how wicked they are. He starts by saying, you better come to repentance. But if you do, God's got a bunch of unfair, wonderful blessings waiting in store for you. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. Then all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, you will grow the pine tree. And instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be Yahweh's renown for an everlasting sign which, he, which will not be destroyed. It won't be your fame. It will be the Lord's. Amen. Daniel says, Give ear to me, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Do we have any right to make a demand on God? Has he ever sown a seed? Has he ever asked for a harvest where he didn't give the seed and the water and the sun? Hmm. No. Micah 7. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show chesed, unfailing love. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread out, you will tread out our sins underfoot and hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham so you pledged an oath to our fathers in days long ago. Amen. Who is a God like you? How do we even have the chance to be in your presence? Titus 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, 
not because of righteous things which we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us so generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Amen? It's not the certainty of eternal life because we can still forget what manner of man we are. It's not the certainty of eternal life because we can still draw back and his soul will have no pleasure in us. But he says to us, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Remember what God has done for you. And in light of his mercy, ask yourself, what kind of sacrifice am I being called to make in this moment, in this day, in this place in my life? Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. So we need to thank God for his unfairness. Thank you for being an unfair God, for giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. And we need to ask him to forgive us for becoming satisfied with our pseudo-life apart from him. Amen. You know what it feels like to feel his presence. And it's a sacrifice, I don't deny that, to stay there. But when you lose your sense of what you deserve, the edge is taken away. It's no longer in your life. The edge. That sharpness. That keenness. That sensitivity to feel. It's taken away. And you become complacent and relaxed and apathetic in, you, in your assumption that all things will continue just as they have from the beginning. But you snatch someone from the fire. Their cloak still stinks of smoke. And they stand in the presence of God with a trembling inside that says, I can't believe I'm here. I'm so unworthy, God, but thank you. When he describes the perilous times in the last days, one of the, the hallmarks of the reprobates is he says they will be unthankful. God help me to come into every setting and say this is so unfair. I don't deserve this opportunity. Lord you and I know that apart from you I'm worse than nothing. I'm less than nothing. This is so unfair, God. It's so unfair what you suffered for me. It's so unfair what others have done for me. You have given everything to me. What can I do for you? You have laid down your life for me. What can I do for you? You pulled me out of bondage. 
and you made me renewed inside. You filled up the hunger that had always been denied. You opened up a door that no man can shut, and you opened it up so wide. What can I do for you? You remember it. You feel it. You start to have those prayers where your heart softens again. Hallelujah. He says, tear your heart and not your garments. You're going to start to feel it again. You're going to start to feel He says, unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious. He's still there for you. His spirit is still there. His grace is still there. His power is still there. It's just waiting for your weakness. We are under obligation, brothers, he says, not to live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 14. We are under obligation, brothers. That's all I'm trying to say. We're under obligation. Don't say it's not fair because that works against you. Thank you, Jesus. God, I want to lay down my life. I'd do anything, God. If it could bring you honor, if it could bring you glory. After all the dishonor I've brought, after all the pain I've caused, not just before I was redeemed, but all the times you've forgiven me since. He didn't say in my flesh there used to be no good thing. He said in my flesh today there is no good thing. Don't let me glory in it, God. Jesus, 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 God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Help us to turn to you with all our hearts, God. And thank you for not being like us. We want to feel it again. We want to feel it again. We want to feel what it felt like when we came up out of the waters of baptism. And she was singing, there's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. We want to feel it again. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Thank you, Jesus. I don't know what to do or say, but if somebody feels God calling on them tonight, give Him glory however He puts on your heart. Give Him glory. Pledge your life again to the unfair privilege of laying it down for Jesus' sake. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Anybody feel that tonight? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you for the privilege. Thank you, Jesus, God. Hallelujah.
Anybody else feel that tonight? Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, oh, God. Hallelujah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You're feeling it again. Let your heart feel it. Remember your first love. God, take away all the bitterness. Take away all the judgments. They're based on fairness. I don't want what's fair. I want salvation. Take away all the criticism, the cynicism. Hallelujah. Wash me, God.